Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. For those who don't know me, my name is Eni Swart. I'm one of the pastors of uh, Shofar Joburg. And uh, there's a picture of my lovely family up there. I'm going to read um, this portion from Acts 22, which records one of the three instances where Paul gives his testimony in the book of Acts. Okay, so I'm going to read it uh, through it uh, to you, but I, I, want, to, I want you to, to read it with me with a question in mind. Okay? I want you to try and sort of see whether you can figure out um, where Paul actually gets saved. Where is Paul converted? Okay? So I'm, I'm, going, to give you, I'm going to give you three options. Um, Okay, so the, 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 the passage breaks into um, three portions. It's um, Acts 22, verse 1 to 5, which is where Paul sort of is he's, he's talking about where he comes from, who he is, and so on. Then verse uh, 6 to 10 is the, the encounter on the road to Damascus. And then verses 11 to 16 is the encounter with Ananias in Damascus. Okay, so in which of those three sections does Paul actually get converted? Okay. So I'm going to read it. Let's read it together. Acts 22 from verse 1. It says, Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, in other words, in the city of Jerusalem. I studied, studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their, to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. Uh, sorry, let me just interrupt myself there for a moment. Noonday is like the brightest time of the day. So if he says at noonday a bright light flashed from heaven, you know, that light must have been very bright. I mean, if, if, if you're in the dark, it doesn't take much light to sort of make it look bright. But when you're in a bright noonday time, for a light to seem bright, it must be very, very bright. Okay, so this bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, Paul was first Saul of Tarsus, and then he changed his name to Paul. Saul means great, by the way, and Paul means little or small. Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one 
and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. I want you to turn to the person next to you, and then you guys discuss amongst you. Where does Paul get converted? Verse 1 to 5, verse 6 to 10, or verse 11 to, to 16? Okay, let's, let's, let's vote on this one, right? <laughs> Who says Paul got saved in verse 1 to 5? Put up your hand. We have one hand there at the back. Two, two hands, there we go. So we have two hands, okay? Who says Paul got, Paul's con- got converted in somewhere in verse 6 to 10? Oh, quite a few. Quite a few, okay? This one's popular. Who says Paul got converted somewhere in verse 11 to 16? Slightly less, but quite a significant amount as well. Okay. Okay, we're going to look at this passage um, just from, I'm just going to try and highlight three things from this passage that I hope we're going to learn a few things on from. First, what conversion is and what conversion is not. Okay? So if we disagree, and we seem to disagree quite significantly about where Paul actually get convert, gets converted, it actually means that we don't necessarily have exactly the same idea of what conversion is or when someone is truly converted. And, and just think about that for a moment. Isn't that quite a big problem in the church because a big problem in the church is that many people come to church thinking they converted when actually they're not that's a reality in South Africa where we come from a Christianized country that many people come to to church and assume they converted And because we sometimes don't have a crystal clear idea of what conversion is, and when someone is converted, we cannot help one another check whether we're actually converted. Okay, so what conversion is and is not? How baptism relates to conversion? That's a good question, right? You know, some of you might think, okay, when Paul was baptized in water, as recorded here, is that when he got converted? Does baptism actually save you? There are people that believe that, right? Do we believe that? What conversion results in? Okay, so I'm going to try and make this uh, nice and quick. Um, First, before we look at what conversion is, let's first look at what conversion is not. Sometimes it's good to look at what something is not, to define it, you know, by its opposite or by what what it is not. So, for instance, you can say if you want to define love, you can sort of describe it as acting in the best interest of someone, uh, being willing to disadvantage yourself in order to advantage others. Or you can say, love is the opposite of hate. Okay, that's also a way of defining it. Or you can say, love is not the same as lust. Lust is actually not love. Lust is the world's counterfeit for love. Okay, and and in those ways, you're also defining what what love is. So firstly, what we see from, from this is conversion is not about belonging to the right ethnic group or speaking the right language. So Paul is here in Jerusalem amongst a bunch of Jews, and they, many of those Jews in those days, felt they had a monopoly on conversion and on salvation. And when Paul spoke in Aramaic to them and said, I'm a Jew, they all of a sudden became quiet. Yes, this, this guy we'll listen to. He's a Jew and he speaks the right lang- language. He belongs to the right ethnic group, ours, and he speaks the right language, ours. <laughs> and, 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 and we laugh at that and we think, but, but I mean, who will think that by speaking the right language and belonging to the right people group, you'll be, be, you can be saved? You'd be surprised. 
there are whole movements like the Hebrew Roots movement and some branches of that movement actually believe exactly that. That you cannot be saved unless you are somehow part of the Jewish nation. And if you are truly saved, you must speak the Jewish language, you must speak Hebrew. You're not allowed to say Jesus, you must say yes, you are. You're not allowed to talk about God or Lord, you must say Yahweh. Now, of course, those are. Jesus' name is Yeshua in, in Aramaic, and God's name is Yahweh in, in Hebrew. Um, that, that is absolutely true, and there's absolutely no, nothing wrong with calling, uh, with using those names. But I think there is something wrong with insisting that you may only use those names. I've driven out demons in the name of Jesus, not in the name of Yeshua. I've prayed for people to be healed in the name of Jesus, and then they healed. You don't have to. In other words, the gospel is translatable. In fact, the Word of God, the New Testament, the Old Testament was inspired in, Ara- in Hebrew and Aramaic, but the New Testament was actually inspired in Greek. To show, which was the sort of the equivalent of English in that time, it was the, the global language, to show us that the gospel is fundamentally translatable into every language and every culture. And it's not by being in a specific, uh, speaking a specific language or being part of a specific ethnic group or culture that you are saved. That doesn't make you converted or saved. Okay? Um, conversion is not about where you come from or where you were raised. He came from Tarsus, which was a great city in the Roman Empire. He was raised in Jerusalem, which was like the city, the city of God under the Old Covenant. But even where you come from, where you, where you were born and where you were raised, doesn't um, make you saved or unsaved. The gospel is from ev- for everyone, from everywhere. Uh, conversion is not about your education. I mean, Paul had the best education that was available to any Jewish person. He was educated, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was the greatest teacher, rabbi, um, according to the Jews, he was the greatest rabbi of that time. We know, of course, that Jesus was the greatest rabbi of that time. But according to the Orthodox Jews, he was Gamaliel. He was the man. If you were trained under Gamaliel, you had pedigree. But your education doesn't convert you. In fact, like Paul, you can know a lot about Scripture and not be saved. In John 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you will have eternal life. And these are the scriptures that speak of me. Yet you will not come to me that you may have life. In other words, if you don't find Jesus in the scriptures, you will not find life. And you can be highly educated like Paul was and highly intelligent like Paul was and still not be converted despite your education and your education in the scriptures. Um, so, you know, conversion is also not about your knowledge in the Scriptures. He was thoroughly trained in the Scriptures, and that didn't save him. That didn't mean he was converted. Uh, conversion is not about um, your zeal for God. <laughs> Notice he says, I was as zealous for God as any one of you are. And yet, in verse 22 of the same chapter, they want to murder him. They said, rid the earth of him. Let's kill him right now. He doesn't deserve to live. In other words, Paul acknowledges that they are zealous for God, and yet they're a murderous mob, and they they certainly are not converted. They're certainly not saved. So just being zealous for God doesn't save you. Now, many people who are very zealous for God, but like Paul, 
not very saved, not very converted at all. Um, so, conversion is not about, <laughs> you might find this one interesting, conversion is not about calling Jesus Lord. You can call Jesus Lord without being converted. In those verses, now some of you looked at that verse and said, ah, you know, uh, you see, on the road to Damascus, he calls Jesus Lord, therefore that, he must have been converted. But read the whole sentence, he says, Lord, who are you? He doesn't know who he's talking to. <laughs> now, just to give you a bit of background here, the, the Greek word kurios, which is translated Lord, can be the Greek translation of Yahweh in the, in the Hebrew, or just of um, Sir, you can, you, know, you can translate it Lord as in Yahweh, or you can translate it Lord as in Sir. Now, I'm not going to show you this, but in, in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius is speaking to the angel, he says to him, Lord, what shall I do? And he uses the same word, kurios. Now, Cornelius didn't think the angel was God. He was just showing respect. He was just saying, Sir, what shall I do? Okay? So, I, I believe Paul is doing the same here. He doesn't know who he's talking to. That's why he says, Lord, he's, he's being respectful, because he knows, you know, if, if someone's speaking to you from heaven, it's someone who's a little higher and a bit greater than you. So you've got to be respectful here. So you've got to use a respectful title like kurios. But he doesn't know who he's talking to. He says, Lord, who are you? So you can call Jesus Lord without knowing who he really is and therefore not being saved. And, and there are many other scriptures that, that say the same. Jesus says in, uh, I'm not going to bring it up because I, I, I don't have much time, but Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, I think it's from verse 21 to 23. In fact, let me, let me read it to you because that really is powerful. Um, ah, I should have put it in here, but I didn't. But he says basically to them, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. He says, in, in the last days, many will come to me. Not some or few Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do all kinds of miracles in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness, you evildoers. I think that is especially a word of warning for us as the charismatic church. There are big parts of the charismatic church that concern me very deeply because they are very excited about the power of God to cast out demons and to prophesy and to do miracles, but they're not very excited about the power of God that helps you to live a godly life. And I think many charismatics are going to hear Jesus on the last day say, depart from me, I never knew you, you evildoers. I just notice Jesus doesn't say, I knew you and then you backslid and now I don't know you anymore. He says, I never knew you. These people were never saved. And, and Jesus, when they say, didn't we not prophesy, cast out demons and, and, and do miracles in your name? Jesus doesn't say, yes, you did. But you were also evildoers. He, he doesn't acknowledge. So they think they did all these things. As far as Jesus is concerned, it's not very clear whether they actually did them. Um, so even calling Jesus Lord does not necessarily mean you're converted. You've got to actually know who he is. You, can, you cannot be saved. You cannot just say Jesus is Lord, and then, but you don't know him, you don't know who he is, and then uh, think that you, you're saved. Um, conversion is not about being called brother by other Christians. So Ananias comes along, who is clearly a Christian, and he says to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus sent me to you 
to do certain things, okay? So many people will say, okay, but you see, another Christian calls him brother, so he must be a Christian. No, remember, right in the first verse of this chapter, Paul himself calls a, a, a mob of Jews who are clearly not converted brothers and fathers. So it was, it was common for Jews, you know, from the same ethnic group, to refer to one another as brother and sister or father or whatever. So even that doesn't mean you're saved. Just because other Christians call you brother or sister doesn't mean you're converted, doesn't mean you're saved. Those things don't save you. Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong. Obviously, if you're saved, we're supposed to call one another brother and sister. Obviously, if we are converted, we're supposed to call Jesus Lord. All I'm saying is that calling Jesus Lord per se doesn't save you. Another Christian calling you brother or sister per se doesn't save you. I was being part of the Christian community. There are many Christians, Christians in name, who are part of the Christian community, who are referred to as Christians, who are called brother and sisters by other Christians, but who are not converted. They're nominal Christians. They're Christians in name, but not in reality. <clears throat> so Paul, um, conversion is not about having, this might surprise you, conversion is not about having an encounter with Jesus. Now, often an encounter to Jesus leads to conversion. But just because you've had an encounter with Jesus doesn't mean that you're converted. As we're going to see in this, um, in this passage, Paul had a genuine encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, but that encounter was not his conversion. And we, we, we hear many testimonies about this. I, I've heard many, many testimonies, and, and it actually surprises me, especially from people converting in the Muslim world who get dreams or visions about Jesus. And it's amazing to me how often and how accurately it, it mirrors Paul's experience. So I heard, for instance, an ex experience of a, of a very radical, um, orthodox Muslim man, young man, um, who wanted to, you know, become part of Al-Qaeda and join the jihad and so on. And he was very serious about his faith. Um, and I can't remember what set him off, but for some other reason, maybe someone mentioned something to him about Jesus. I think he prayed and, 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 and said, God, you know, if Jesus is, is real and he, and, he, and he really is Savior, please show it. Please, please, re, please reveal yourself to me, Jesus, if you're really God. I don't think he really expected it to happen. But actually, in a dream, Jesus appeared to him and said, I am Jesus. And what the Christians say about me really is true. I really am the Messiah. I really am the Son of God. I really am the Savior of the world. Now go, and he sent him to a specific street and, uh, where there was a, um, I think it was a different city or something he had to go to, and there was a poster up of someone having a prayer meeting. And he said, go to that street. You'll see a poster there. Go to that man, and he'll tell you how to get saved. And, he, and, and, and this Muslim man went there. He saw the poster exactly where Jesus said it would be, and he went to the whoever Christian it was um, who was hosting the meeting, and he said, I want to be saved. And, and, and the guy let him preach the gospel to him and led him to the Lord. So, but, but he had a genuine encounter with Jesus, where Jesus even prophetically told him where to go, but that didn't save him. Jesus said to him, go to the Christian and hear the gospel, and that will save you. So even having an encounter with Jesus doesn't necessarily per se save you. I know of quite a few people who have had genuine encounters with Jesus, but... Um, Often, that only led to them rejecting Jesus. Sometimes later on, they repented and turned around and actually accepted Jesus. Um, 
Conversion is not about experiencing a miracle. And Ananias comes and he stands next to Paul and he lays hands on him and he said, Paul, receive your sight. And he said, at that very hour, I could see him. But he still wasn't saved. Miracles, experiencing a miracle, receiving a miracle is great and it, it can certainly help to lead to your salvation. But experiencing a miracle per se doesn't save you. doesn't convert you. So, what is conversion? <laughs> We've talked now about what conversion is not. What is conversion? Um, first part of conversion is when Ananias preaches to Paul, Saul, who became Paul, he had a genuine encounter with Jesus. And Jesus even identified and said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. But when Ananias preaches to him, he says, God, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will. So being chosen by God to know his will, that, that's, a, that's, that's part of it, to know his will. And, and another part is, and to see, his righteous, to see the righteous one. And was knowing that Jesus is the righteous one. What does the word righteous mean? It's not a, it's not a word we use very often in normal everyday language, right? It's not the, a, a word you hear used next to the water cooler, you know, at the office. Okay? The word righteous, it's a sort of religious word that means literally right standing or right relationship. To be right in every way. So he says that this Jesus who met you on the road to Damascus, the reason why only he can save you is because he is the righteous one. Notice he doesn't say he's a righteous one. He says he's the righteous one. In fact, he is the only righteous one. He's the only human being who is truly righteous and fully righteous. There's no one else righteous. And the gospel is that God is so holy and so just and so good that only someone who is perfectly righteous can have relationship with him. And the first part of salvation is to recognize that Jesus is the righteous one, the only righteous one, and I am a sinner. I am not righteous. Now, look at it from Paul's perspective. He says, I was zealous for God. I was thoroughly trained in the law. I lived a moral life, as moral as you could. In other words, the first step in salvation is acknowledging that even our good works, even our own righteousness, even our own good works and our righteous deeds are sin before God. Because, I mean, he says, have your sins washed away. I cannot depend on, I cannot rely on my own righteousness. I have to rely on the righteousness of the righteous one. In other words, Christianity, every other religion, you work up a, a righteous track record, a good track record of good behavior, and you come and present it to the God or gods of that religion and say, this makes me good enough, accept me. Christianity is the only religion where you don't come with your own righteous track record, but where you come and present the righteous track record of another one, the righteous one, Jesus of Nazareth, and say, Accept me based on this. In other words, all other religions are religions of do, about what I must do to be saved. Christianity is a religion of done, what Jesus has done to save you. So I always say the gospel is good news, not good advice. 
It's good news about what Jesus has done to save you, not good advice about what you must do to save yourself. And yet, so often, we, like Paul, treat the Bible as though it gives good advice and not just and not good news. Now, that doesn't mean that your behavior is not going to change once you get saved. Of course it's going to change. Of course you're going to try and live a righteous life. But not in order to be saved. Not in order to be loved and accepted. But because you're already loved and accepted. So that's the first step. Recognizing that Jesus is the righteous one and I'm a sinner who needs salvation. Um, Secondly, notice it says in that last verse, um, let me just find it again. There we go. It says, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized. Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now, um, that brings us to, to, to the baptism. And where does baptism? Because if you read that, that sentence, it might look as though it's by being baptized that your sins are washed away, right? You could read it like that. It seems to look like that. I think in the Greek it's a bit more clear than in the English. Um, in the Greek there are two what's called participles, helping verbs, and, and two imperatives, command verbs. Um, and the, the, each participle is connected to the, to, to the command. So it says arise or get up. It, it, that's the participle. It, says, it literally says getting up, be baptized. So in get up so that you can be baptized. And then he says, and the next command, wash away your sins. And then the next participle, uh, calling on his name. In other words, wash away your sins by calling on his name. Okay? So yeah, actually, interestingly enough, the, um, the New Living Translation is, is a pretty good translation. It says, uh, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized, full stop. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. In other words, this tells us quite a few things about baptism. Okay, let me, because we're going to baptize a few people now, including my son, Justin. I'm very excited about that. Justin's getting baptized. Um, but, but a few things that this tells us about baptism. Firstly, it tells us that baptism is immersion. It's not sprinkling. Okay? If, if baptism were sprinkling, Ananias would not have said to him, get up and be baptized. Because if, if you need to be sprinkled, or if you get sprinkled, um, you, you don't have to get up. Now, I can think that under certain circumstances, you know, if you only have a cup of water, you know, or a, little, a few few, you know, milliliters of water, I think it's quite acceptable to sprinkle that over someone and say they're baptized. Because remember, baptism is only a symbol, okay? But if you can, I think the symbol works better if you do it by immersion. Because we're going to see now why that is. But, but he says, get up, and the word baptize, the verb baptize literally means to immerse, it literally means to dip. There, there's places, for instance, in Revelation 19, I think verse 13, where it talks about Jesus having a, a robe dipped in blood. And it's the same, the same root, of uh, Greek root that is used there, uh, bapto, for, for the word baptism. So it literally means, in fact, come to think of it, I think in modern Greek, 
they would often still say, if a ship has sunk, they would say the ship has been baptized. <laughs> it, it, well, literally translated. It, they would use that same verb, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, so firstly, it tells us that, you know, the word baptize means, means to immerse. Um, even if you look at, at Jesus' baptism in, in, in Mark one verse nine and ten. It says Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, and as he was coming up out of the water, the Spirit of God ascended on him like a dove. So he was under the water. You can't come up out of the water unless you are under the water. So the the, the example seems to be of of immersion. So that seems to be the ideal way. Now, obviously, you know God is not nitpicky. You know, if you don't have enough water, you're welcome to to just pour a cup of water over someone's head or something like that. Secondly, it tells us that baptism is communal. It says, arise and be baptized. Baptism is one of those things that you cannot do to yourself. Baptism presupposes a community around you. It's not like you can take yourself by the hair and say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you know, I baptize you. <laughs> That's not the ideal. The ideal is that you're part of a community who baptize. Once again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting wondering here now, you know, if, if you're the only person and you have a Bible and you're reading it and you get saved and and you realize, okay, I must be baptized, but there's no one else around. I, I, <laughs> I think God will be okay if you take yourself by the hand and, <laughs> and immerse yourself and baptize yourself. I think God will recognize that. Um, thirdly, it tells us that um, baptism does not wash your sins away, but it is symbolic of washing your sins away. So what does wash your sin away? Calling on the name of the Lord in faith. That washes your sin away. Um, in, in Acts, the same book of Acts, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. Calling on the name of Jesus by faith. Not like Paul saying, you know, Lord, but not knowing who you're talking to. But understanding that he's the Savior of the world. He's the Messiah. And calling on his name in faith. Faith in what? What is faith? Let me, let me just maybe stop there because I, I think there's someone here who needs to understand this. If, if you're in a plane and that plane's engines are stopping, they've died, and the plane is about to crash, and you, and you have a, a parachute, it doesn't help you look at the parachute and say, oh, I believe in the parachute you know, the parachute can save my life, you know. Praise God for the parachute. <laughs> You're still going to die unless you put on the parachute and jump out of the plane and trust that the parachute will carry your weight and carry you safely down to earth. Now, it's the same with Jesus. It's no good you say, I believe in Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Jesus can save me. All of those things are true. But unless you put Jesus on like a parachute and jump out of the crashing plane of your old life, you will still die in your sins. So it's calling. Uh, baptism does not wash away your sins, but baptism symbolizes washing away your sins as you call on his name in faith. Now, that point right there, calling on his name, calling on the name of the Lord, that is what I believe was Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion. He says, wash your sins away by calling on his name. In other words, if he had to wash his sins away, his sins had not yet been washed away. 
he was still in his sin. His sins had not yet been forgiven. He had not yet been converted. And only when his sins were washed away, only then was he truly converted. But it tells us also a fourth thing about baptism. It tells us that baptism is the ideal occasion to confess your sin and to confess your faith in Jesus and in his name. In, in modern Christianity, you get two kinds of Christians or approaches to baptism. You get what's called pedo-baptism, baptizing, uh, baptizing infants or children, and then you get credo-baptism, baptizing people who, who confess faith. And actually, ironically speaking, this scripture tells us that both of them aren't entirely right. It tells us the ideal place for baptism is not before you get converted or after you get converted, but while you get converted. In other words, the ideal place for baptism is as the response to the altar call, if I can put it that way. In other words, as Paul was standing in the water being baptized, he was confessing his sin and he was confessing his faith in Jesus Christ and he was being converted. I find only one place, I find no places in scripture where people are baptized before their conversion and I find only one place in the book of Acts where people are baptized after their conversion, and that's in Acts chapter 10. Verse, um, let me just read that to you as well. Acts chapter 10, verse 40, from verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all, of, all who heard the message, the message of the gospel. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So th- this is the only example I can find in the whole book of Acts where people are baptized in water after their conversion. And Paul's, you know, words are interesting. He says, can anyone withhold water so that these can be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit? So they've already been born of the Spirit. They've already received the Holy Spirit. They've already been saved. Um, And Paul says, well, then no one can prevent them from being baptized in water. The implication is that there are circumstances under which someone can be, water can be without for them to be baptized. If Paul says, you know, um, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized. Um, literally, it, it, it says, who can, who can um, forbid water for them to be baptized with? So there are circumstances. The implication is that there are circumstances under which water can be forbidden for people to be baptized with. But if they've been converted, if they receive the Holy Spirit, anyone can be baptized. So Paul's sins were only washed away here and that, then, is his conversion. Now, I, um, I had more of an experience like Cornelius in his household. Um, I, was, I was born on the 11th of August, 1967. And the 11th of August, traditionally, 76. 76, sorry. 11th of, <laughs> I have some gray, gray hair in my beard. And my, but I, I'm still in my 40s, not my 50s. But I I was born on the 11th of August, 1976. And traditionally, it turned out to be a good day for me because I was then also born again on the 11th of August, 1989. And I was married to Richelle on the 11th of August, uh, 2001. So it's it's, it's been a good day for me. But my conversion happened. I was at a youth camp 
I was raised as a, as a, as a good Dutch Reformed boyki, a uh, good Afrikaner boyki in a Dutch Reformed church. And, and my parents always took us to, to, to church and to Sunday school. I mean, even when they didn't go to church, they took us to Sunday school. They'd drop us off at Sunday school and, 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 and we'd, we'd hear the word. And I'm thankful for that. I really I honor my parents. And I'm, I'm thankful for them for that. We, we did not live... We were nominal Christians. We did not live real Christian lives. In other words, we went to church on a Sunday and we, we, we were serious about it, but it didn't affect our Monday to Saturday. So, so it, wasn't, it wasn't quite real to us. Um, but then on that youth camp, I remember it was on my birthday, and I remember it was my birthday because everyone who was there forgot it. My friends and my brothers and so on who were with me on the camp, they all forgot my birthday. Um, but the pastor, the youth pastor sort of shared uh, the, the Dumini, the young Dumini, shared a, a basic gospel presentation. I can't even remember what he said, but I remember it sort of struck a chord with me, and I realized that I need salvation. And, and he said, if you want to commit your life to Jesus, you can just pray and give your life to him. And that was the first time in my life that I realized I needed to respond to the gospel. And it just made sense to me. And I'm like, yes, of course, I need to respond. I need to repent of my sins. I need to put my trust in Jesus. And I can't even remember what I prayed. I probably prayed something like Jesus come into my heart or Jesus come and save me or Jesus, I give my life to you or something like that. But I know things changed after that. All of a sudden I had a hunger for God's word. All of a sudden I wanted to pray. Um, but then a couple of years later, when I was in, in what we called Standard 9 in those days, grade 11, uh, friends of mine got saved in a, in a charismatic church. And we started just sort of visiting Pentecostal charismatic churches. And I saw people being baptized. And, and we were starting to read the, the book of Acts and um, just before that, before we went to the, to the charismatic churches. And, and we saw people laying hands on one another and praying for one another and speaking in tongues and doing all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff. And we thought, oh, that's nice. Let's try it, you know. And what do you know? It actually worked, you know. As we were laying hands on one another and praying for one another, started speaking in tongues and prophesying. And so. Now, you must remember, we're a bunch of, you know, Dutch Reform, good Dutch Reform boys who know nothing about these things. Nothing, you know. We just read it in Scripture and we thought, okay, let's try it, you know, and it actually worked. Uh, <laughs> and um, so eventually, you know, I, I went to church and, and I, I read everywhere, you know, about people being baptized, you know, getting converted, being baptized. Now, there's a lot more to baptism than what I'm sharing now. What I'm sharing now is, is, is the superficial basics and so on. So there's a lot more to it uh, than that. Um, but... What I saw was that as part of my faith journey, as part of my commitment to the Lord, I need to be baptized. And God actually had to literally speak to me nine times before I listened because that's how strong, strongly I was averse to being baptized in water. Um, but eventually I gave in. I said, okay, fine, baptize me. And, and I got baptized. I didn't even tell my parents. Not the right way to do it, please. <laughs> you know, if you're going to do it, do it right. Tell your parents, say, listen, I want to honor you you know, please come. I, I didn't even think about it. I, I wasn't trying to be nasty. I just didn't think about telling them because we hadn't been sort of walking a spiritual journey together. So, you know, they weren't really part of my spiritual life at that stage, unfortunately. So I got baptized um, in, in, in water. And um, it, was, it was a wonderful time because it was a testimony to the rest of the world that I identify with Jesus. I consider myself to be dead with Christ raised with him, coming up out of the water, symbolizing raising from, from the grave. And the water itself symbolizes my sins have been washed away. Now, sorry, I'm going a little bit over 
longer than I wanted to go, but I, I just want to share some of the results of conversion with you because I think these are going to really bless you. One of the results of conversion is that you become one with Jesus. Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Now, that's not what he says, right? What does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus was at the right hand of the Father. He was sitting at the right hand of the Father. And yet, when, he's Christ, when the Christians, the followers of the way, were persecuted, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Now, if we are his body, then that makes sense. If you take a hammer and hit my little toe, I'm not going to say, what are you doing? Persecuting poor little toe. <laughs> you know? With a hammer and no holes. What's wrong with you? No, 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 no. My whole body's going to respond. I'm going to lay hands on you. <laughs> Not to pray for you or to bless you. <laughs> I'm going to do some five-fold ministry. No. <laughs> I, I'm going to experience it as persecution. I'm not going to say you're persecuting my toe. I'm going to say you're persecuting me. You're hurting me. I'm feeling it. You know, when we get hurt, Jesus feels it. As much as you would feel it if someone hits your little toe with a hammer. In fact, I want to go so far as to say Jesus experiences and feels the oneness we have with him more keenly than we feel and experience that oneness with him. From both sides, the oneness is the same, but because of our spiritual dullness, we often, and our lack of faith, we often don't experience it as intensely. But Jesus experiences it very intensely. Every time someone hurts you, Jesus feels it. Every time someone persecutes you, Jesus feels it. Every time you're sad, Jesus feels it. Every time you're confused, Jesus feels it. Every time you cry, Jesus cries with you. Because that is how one you are with him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's one of the results of conversion. Complete oneness with Christ. Oneness that is greater than we understand. Second one is um, you enter a new way of life. Paul says, I persecuted the followers of this way. In other words, Christianity is a way of life. Now, the way in which you live doesn't save you, but when you are saved, it leads to a new way of life. That's why over and over in the book of Acts, Christianity is called the way. It's the way of God, the way of following Jesus. Um, not, <clears throat> not only, you know, is your sin forgiven, but your sins are, are washed away. They washed away. That's another co consequence of conversion. Not just one of your sins. All of your sins are washed away. They washed away as though they were never there. You're cleansed as though you were never dirty. Th that's radical. I wish I had more time to go into this and actually show you from Scripture that this is true. But that's what it means when it says your sins are washed away. And then finally, you become a witness for him. Notice he says you will be his witness. Not you will do witnessing for him. Witnessing is not something that you do from time to time. But when you are converted, you become a witness. And what's everything about you is witnessing. Everything about you is a witness and a testimony. He says you will be his witness. Not you will do some witnessing from him, for him. You will be his witness. Okay? Secondly, it says you will be his witness. In other words, you become a witness for him. All of us witness for something or someone. You know, some people are witnesses for CrossFit. You know, and they tell you how amazing CrossFit is. 
you know, and they give testimonies about what CrossFit has accomplished in their lives. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that if you're a CrossFit disciple. <laughs> as long as you're also a Jesus disciple and you're more of a witness for Jesus than you are for CrossFit or for Apple or whatever your thing is. <laughs> and then he says you will be a witness of what you have seen and heard. You'll be a witness of what you've seen and heard. In other words, witnesses are not lawyers that try and convince people. Witnesses only testify what they've seen and heard. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince people. It's our job to be witnesses of what we have seen and heard. Sorry, I took a bit longer than I intended to. But we're going to go out now and, and, and baptize a few people. But I want to ask you, in light of what we spoke about, about what conversion is not and what conversion truly is, I want to ask you, have you truly been converted? Or have you, like Paul, just assumed because you did a lot of the right things that you are truly converted? So I just want you to close your eyes. Right there we are. Just close your eyes. Have your sins been washed away as you were calling on his name by faith? The name above every name. The only name in which there is salvation. Have you called on that name by faith and said, I commit my life to him. I surrender my life to him. I am following him, his way, for the rest of my life. Have you done that? Have you truly been converted? And I want you to ask yourself that question seriously. Thank you for your boldness to respond. God sees it. God sees your hearts. God sees that you... You love him and that you're seeking him and that you, you want to make certain you want a deeper relationship with him. Now, I don't know where you are, are and whether this is the first time you're responding, whether you've responded before and you just want to make sure. But however you're responding, I just want you to, with the sincerity of your heart, respond to Jesus. Just close your eyes. And just in your own words, just say, Jesus, you are the righteous one and I am a sinner and I need your salvation. And secondly, say, Jesus... I'm calling on your name by faith and I'm trusting you to save me. Just those two things, repentance and faith. Just in your own words. Okay, I'm just gonna pray, just lead you in a prayer and you can, you can just pray with me. In fact, let's, let's all pray together. Say, Father God, I come to you in Jesus' name and I know, Lord, that I deserve judgment, but I ask you for mercy. Not because I deserve it, but because of what Jesus did. Please look away from my sins and please look to Jesus' righteousness because I give myself to Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I belong to Jesus, the righteous one who lived the life I could not live and who died the death I should have died. Please save me, Lord. Please save me, Jesus. Please wash my sins away as I call on your name. And I believe, Jesus, that there is salvation in no one else that God has given no other name amongst men 
by which you must be saved. Accept the name of Jesus Christ. Save me, Jesus. Make me your own. I will follow you. Help me by your Holy Spirit to live for you and eventually to die for you. You deserve the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.